0: Overcoming opposition. I'm going to pray in a minute, but just to give a bit of background, if you're visiting today or you're first time listening to this series, whether it's online or here at the church, we're looking at Jesus' words when he said, I will build my church, as we then look into the book of Acts and see that's exactly what Jesus did. He built his church, and uh, he said he would, and he left and went back to heaven. He sent his spirit to actually be his presence, his power, and uh, he uh, fulfilled his his own mission to build the church. So today we look at overcoming opposition. We looked last week at challenges that we faced, or that the church, early church, and we indeed face. Uh, for building the church, and one of those was overcoming opposition, which we're going to drill down into today and look at as we have read in chapter 4. So let us pray and ask God to be our teacher this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and as the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so, Lord, we uh, understand that your word can have great power in our lives by your Spirit. So we pray that this morning you will be our teacher, that you will challenge, encourage, rebuke, whatever you know we need from your word, that you'll, you'll just be here present in a very special way. We ask and trust in Jesus' name. Amen. This is, in this chapter, the record of the first opposition to the church and to the gospel and to Jesus Christ in the church environment. Uh, When uh, the Roman Empire became aware of the growing influence of the Christian faith, right through from the time of the early church through to about 313 AD, uh, the Roman Empire uh, was very much involved in causing great pain and suffering and death among Christians. Uh, it was only Constantine who ended that persecution. Uh, people were scourged if they named the name of Christ. If they were Christians, they were beheaded. They were, had wax put on them or tar sometimes and they were put on a pole and set alight while they were alive, and they burned to death because they were Christians. Uh, They were uh, brought into the amphitheater, and skins of freshly killed animals were put on them, and then wild animals and lions and other uh, wild animals were set free to rip them to pieces and kill them in front of everybody. They were tortured. It was not easy to be a Christian in the early church. And it's not easy to be a Christian in some countries today around the world. In fact, uh, Open Doors Ministry, which uh, is a ministry to uh, highlight and to encourage and to support uh, those who are persecuted for their faith as Christians, they say that there's 50 countries where, to name the name of Christ, you are in some way leading from intimidation right through to death, uh, you are persecuted. But Christians preach the gospel. That's why we're calling it overcoming opposition. Despite despite the the opposition, the persecution, the uh, Christian message spread through the whole of the Roman world of that day and continues to spread today. In fact, um, it's often in those countries where there has been significant persecution that the gospel has been very powerful and effective and many have turned to Christ. Isn't it something else? That is really something else. I, I, I'm just amazed at that. But it just shows the power of Christ, the power of the gospel, and that these men who opposed the gospel and opposed the christians in this chapter uh, realized there was something at work but they they wanted to stop it nevertheless today christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world tens of thousands of christians each year are killed for their faith and of course others are held in contempt um Our news sometimes deals with it, our news and the media, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. And today in Australia and other so-called Western countries, there is persecution. No, there's not, but there's opposition. You uh, only have to... I mean, you can go to your workplace or... uh, in a club or somewhere, and you can talk about religious things and you can talk about spirituality, but you talk about Jesus. You talk about Jesus and see the reaction and see the response. There's contempt. Lack of promotion in a job because you're a Christian. If you're a CEO or a director of a football club, you might lose your job. If you're a Christian, you stand up for your faith. There is opposition in Australia today. We all know it. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or as the New Living Translation has, all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Amen. Amen. Jesus calls us and he did back then and today it's the same to take up our cross and follow him. The cross is the symbol of rejection. To stand with Christ is to stand with one who was rejected, despised and nailed to a cross and we are called to follow him, knowing that that will be our lot. To stand up for Jesus Christ in our workplace, among our friends, at university or school, our neighborhood. Now I want, believe it or not, this is a miracle. I've got two points today. I normally have three, anyway. I've got two points. The first one is the reason for the conflict. The reason for the conflict. Why? The conflict. Well, in chapter three, in the previous chapter, we read that the previous day, a man who had been 40 years sitting at the temple gate, brought there uh, because he was a cripple and laid there every day that he gained arms from people going into the temple, a well known 40 years, you know, see somebody at the same place every day, every day at the same place, 40 years. He was well known, especially for the scribes, the Pharisees and the, the, the I'm sorry, the uh, Sadducees and the, uh, the, the priests, the high priests and so on. All entering into the temple, they saw him, they saw him again and again. And suddenly this man was freed from his, his, uh, his impediment. He was able to jump up and leap for joy and walk and run. And it was amazing. And Peter said to the people of the day who gathered around, amazed at this man being able to being healed and miraculously changed, that, that this was the power of Jesus Christ, he said. He has done this in the name of Jesus. But the next day, they grabbed, on that day, they, they grabbed um, Peter and, and, and the other um, apostles and they They threw them into jail and then the next day we find uh, Peter um, is brought before the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees and they were greatly annoyed, it says in verses 1 to 3, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead and they uh, they arrested them and put them in custody till the next day. Then it says that they brought them out and... At that time, the priests or the Sadducees, not the Pharisees. It's interesting. The Pharisees were more about the law. Uh, the Sadducees were about the resurrection and life after death. And they were absolutely strong on their beliefs that there was no resurrection. And it was the resurrection after the resurrection and the, uh, the start of the church. It, was the, it wasn't the Pharisees so much as the Sadducees who spearheaded the opposition to the Christians because of the resurrection. They were the upper wealthy class, the Sadducees. Their lives revolved around the temple. They were involved in overseeing the sacrifices and maintaining the temple's purity. They saw themselves in that role. And they were greatly disturbed, it says, or greatly annoyed, the word is. They... Came against them, and they said, "By what power and by what name did you do this?" And Peter, notice, filled with the Spirit, not Peter before the, cro- the cross and the resurrection and the and Day of Pentecost, when he uh, he would not even confess to knowing Jesus to a maid by a fire, as Jesus was in, in um, facing the court, his court. Peter, filled with the spirit, stood up and he said, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to this crippled man, the ridiculousness of it, we've healed a man, Christ has healed this man and and it's a wonderful thing and, and, and you're coming at us for that? And he goes on to say, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom... You crucified, that's bold. You crucified him and it's in his name. This man has been healed in standing before you today. And then he says this, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He was quoting Psalm 118 verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. When Solomon's temple was being built, you may may remember reading about it in the Old Testament where when they built the temple, they had the quarry where they got the rocks to make the temple. They hewed out the rocks exactly perfectly and trimmed them to the perfect size before they put them on the cart that was taken up to Jerusalem. And then these stones were laid beside each other and apparently they were so perfect you couldn't put a knife blade between two stones. They were just perfectly hewn out and and uh, prepared so that they could build the temple without any noise of a hammer or a chisel or any other... Uh, sound like that. And they just laid those stones beside each other and on top of each other to build the temple. But one stone came up to Jerusalem that didn't fit. So they put it aside. They rejected it and kept on building with the stones that fitted. Then they came to the stone that was the capstone, the chief cornerstone, and they couldn't find it. Until someone said, what about that one we rejected? That we put aside. They got it and it fitted perfectly. And here the Lord Jesus is used as an, that, that actually is a picture of the Lord Jesus. And Peter's saying, he is the rejected stone that was put aside, rejected. And then finally he's shown to be the capstone, the major Cornerstone, the chief cornerstone of the building. And he goes on to say, "There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name. Remember, the uh, Sadducees and the chief priests said, "By what name is this man healed?" And Jesus, and, and Peter says, "Jesus." is the name and let me tell you, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now that statement is something that will cause opposition in our world today. That every other religion, every other ideology, everything else is wrong, false. It does not lead a person to salvation. The only name given among men from heaven The only name under heaven whereby we must be saved is Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again as our living saviour. But there's a greater reason. We looked at the reason why this particular day in the history of the church, uh, the opposition began. But there's a bigger reason, and we find this, First of all, in the words of Jesus, as he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But he also said in John 15, which was just the night before he was betrayed and then went to the cross and died. He said to his disciples in the upper room, if the world hates you, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name. They will do, uh, and the, for they do not know the one who sent me. This is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. The, the source of the conflict was satanic opposition to the gospel and to Christ. The gates of hell, Jesus said, would not prevail. He recognised there would be a battle in building the church. There would be opposition to building the church. But he said the gates of hell will not prevail. The power of darkness, Satan himself and his hosts, will not prevent the church from growing and becoming a strong, established church. Satan's opposition can only be properly understood in light of the whole of the scheme of the Bible of God's revelation in his word that that God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and 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 uh, Satan came and he won their hearts and immediately you have two kingdoms right through the Bible, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And and that's why in in this chapter, we had the Christians reading and quoting Psalm 2. What does Psalm 2 say? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They saw in this opposition something far greater than just the Sadducees being upset about the resurrection. They saw the evil one and the plots and the opposition to Christ and to God. The opposition was anti-God's kingdom, but it was also anti-Christ. Christ was Completely victorious over Satan at the cross. He defeated him. Remember when Idi Amin, that's way back now. When Idi Amin was uh, such an evil man in Uganda. Was it Uganda? Yes, yes. Uganda. I hadn't prepared to tell this story, but I uh, just thought of it now. So it's a good story to illustrate this that when he was then defeated he was still around he he lost the battle but he was still there and he was there were those who then had to choose between loyalty to him or loyalty to the new rulers of uganda and it's the same satan has been defeated but he's still around And the choice now is between whether you're in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan, whether you follow Jesus Christ as Lord and King or whether you continue in the pathway that you are because the whole world is under the power of the evil one, the Bible says. So you're either in one kingdom or the other. Paul said he's translated us talking to Christians out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. It's a matter of kingdoms and it's anti Christ. In 1 Peter 4 13, we read, But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Yeah, you're suffering, but it's the sufferings of Christ. Remember when Paul, well, he was Saul then, um, met the Lord on the road to Emmaus? And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the Christians? No, he didn't. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Oh, persecuting the Christians, but Jesus said, no, you're persecuting me. I am them. They are one with me and I'm one with them. It's antichrist. That's the reason you oppose me, uh, them, is because you oppose me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him come and die. Whoa. (laughs) Put up your hand. Um, But put up your hand and say, yep, that's for me, Lord. I'll go with that. It's a challenge. Philippians one twenty nine has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him as part of the parcel. that comes with the territory. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. So we looked at the reason for the conflict. And my second point, as I mentioned earlier, is going to be this, the response to the conflict. How did they respond to it? First of all, Well, it's all built around the word confidence. They were confident in God's sovereignty. It's interesting, they prayed. In fact, you'll find in the book of Acts, every significant event begins or ends or both with prayer. The phrase they prayed in the book of Acts appears 48 times. Is this a praying church? Are you a praying person? And they prayed these words. They lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then in verse 28, they did, these people did what your power and your plan had predestined to take place. We're in the hands of the sovereign Lord who's the king of the universe and he allows things, yes, but we can trust him. Like those three, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Shake the bed, make the bed and into bed we go. As a kid I used to learn that, how you remember their names. But anyway, I can't help saying their names without thinking about that. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And they were thrown into the fire. Why? Because they stood up for God and they wouldn't bow down to idols. And when they were thrown in, the ones who threw them in were burned up in the fire. They were not even a singe of their hair. And with them in the fire was the fourth one. And, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar said, like the Son of God. Christ was with him in the fire. And he's with us. When we suffer for Christ. He is sovereign. They said when they were thrown into the fire. Well if God saves us from this. Wonderful. If not we're willing to die. That's the kind of attitude that the early church had. it's the kind of attitude we should have. As we believe in a sovereign Lord. And again, Psalm 2, the powers of this world standing against the Lord, they rage. The idea there of rage is is, is used of a spirited horse that is, is before it's broken in. You know these horses and they kick and buck and they won't let anyone sit on them until finally they're broken in and they submit to the one who's riding them. And so this is what the picture language here in Psalm 2 of the nations and, and the world, if you like, opposed to God and to his Christ. And that is that they fight it. They rage. They plot in vain. In other words, they try to outwit God. What? In vain. And it says in the next verse, which I didn't read to you, and, and God in heaven laughs. He laughs. Why? Why? Having done their worst, they merely succeed in fulfilling what God has eternally planned. God is sovereign. God's sovereignty was shown in, in, in through the book of Acts, as I'll show you on the screen. In chapter 4, there was opposition from outside, but it resulted in God's providence bringing boldness, unity and power and grace. In chapter 5, there was deception from within the church. And in God's providence, it created God's response to that resulted in great fear and the progress of the gospel. In chapter 5, there was persecution from outside the church. And then there was rejoicing and progress as a result of that. There was division in chapter 6 from within the church. And then God's providence resulted in numbers multiplying as a result of that and God's response to it. There was chapter 7, martyrdom of Stephen, And persecution followed. But there was widespread evangelism as a result as people went out everywhere with the gospel because of the persecution. In chapter 9, it was organized opposition. And then you have through that organized opposition and Saul leading that, the conversion of Saul, the greatest uh, missionary the church has ever known by God's grace in his life. And then chapter 12, persecution. And then God's response, the spreading influence of God's word. Never, ever doubt God's sovereignty, no matter what you're going through. He will use it for good. He will use it for his glory. He will use it for the extension of his kingdom. Trust him. Be bold. Be filled with the spirit. Stand firm. Today in countries and communities, Huge numbers are turning to Christ in countries where they are persecuted, as I mentioned earlier. Not only confidence in God's sovereignty, but confidence in God's purpose. It's similar to sovereignty, but I want to just say a personal thing for us today. That when we suffer, we suffer for a reason. First of all, suffering deepens faith. And holiness, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. And this was written to a suffering church, don't forget, to a church that was persecuted. And the author of Hebrews says, endure hardship as discipline. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Secondly, suffering brings reward in heaven. In 2 Corinthians, we read in chapter 4, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. In Romans 8 verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then third is suffering glorifies God the entire universe exists to display the greatness of God's glory that's what life is about that's what the Christian life is about bringing glory to God his glory was supremely manifest in the death of his son Jesus died the holy Perfect Son of God suffered willingly to save a world in rebellion against Him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine those words? from the God who created everything, who has all power, who could walk away from them, who could send this whole world into oblivion and return to heaven without anyone to answer to. He said, Father, forgive them. As he hung there and suffered in pain and agony on the cross, Father, forgive them. God was glorified in Christ as he suffered. and Now we are called to suffer sometimes, not in this country much. But when we are called to suffer for the name of Christ, it brings him glory. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, it says in chapter 5. Rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Not only confidence in God's per- uh, sovereignty and purpose, but also confidence they had in God's power. And verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Man, that must have been something. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So confidence in God's power. God's power, first of all, was at work in them to be bold. That wasn't natural. It's not natural for you or me to be bold. We're faced with people at work and they say things and, and, and we feel intimidated. Trust God to fill you with his spirit. Oh, fill me. In, and, and the moment you step out and speak, he's there. Jesus said that's what happened. If they're called before the council, just trust God. He'll give you the words. Boldness. God's power at work in them by his spirit, but also God's power through them to work in miraculous ways. And God can use you and your word to change a life, to bring salvation, to set someone free. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a commissioned evangelist. All you need to know is that Jesus Christ is the savior because he died for our sins and he rose again and he invites all to, be, to experience his power and grace in, in their lives. You just share the gospel and let God, by his power, do the miracle. Now, ask you a question you don't understand the answer, say, say so. Oh, I don't know what that answer is. Let me go and have a look at it and I'll tell you, talk about it next week. Gives you an opportunity for a second talk, second chat. You don't know where that might lead. We all struggle with fear when witnessing. Filling of the Spirit was often accompanied in, in the other passages in Acts where we read about it. It was preceded, it preceded, should I say, bold and powerful Witnessing. Go into all the world, you'll see on the screen. Go into all the world. and Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is available for us today in the same way. When fear blocks away the Holy Spirit, is to be trusted that he will fill us. I never forget, in Amsterdam 83 it was called, it was the, um, Billy Graham organized a a big convention in, in, um, in Amsterdam for evangelists from around the world. And I was an evangelist, a traveling evangelist at that time based in New Zealand, so I went. And part of what they did was they sat you at tables at one point with people from different countries. They did it strategically, I think, because I sat at a table. There was someone from Hungary. Um, There was someone from a, a country in Africa. There was someone from the United States of America. There was someone from somewhere in Europe. And there was someone from then New Zealand and maybe others. We sat at that table and we were to talk about being a Christian in our country. And at that point, the person from Hungary said, At that point, it was like very, very difficult to be a Christian. Or well, he spoke of a time when it was, and the sufferings, and the opposition to the gospel. And the person from Africa was a country that they were at came from had similar story of persecution and opposition. As I sat and listened to their testimonies and then I was to share mine, I said, oh, what do I say? I felt ashamed. I found it hard to open my mouth and share the gospel even as an evangelist when I was speaking to somebody like... Um, a neighbour or somebody in the street or something like that. It it was a challenge to just do that. It's easy to stand up here and preach. Maybe it's not that easy, but I found that I could prepare for that and do it. But we are called to share our faith. And I felt so ashamed. I thought, what if instead of this conference, it wasn't here at Amsterdam. It was in heaven. And when we get to heaven, we'll sit down with those Who come from Iran or South Korea, I mean North Korea or Russia or other countries, and sit down and talk with them. They share their stories. What have we got to share? We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I want to finish there, but I just want to encourage us to know that God has called us to be lights in a dark world and he has given us the resources. We have his word, we have the gospel. We have the spirit of God to fill us and to empower us and to give us boldness and to use us in his desire to build his church. God bless you.